My name is Keith Whitman, and I, um, I grew up in the U.S. and I live in Australia now. Um, and I started making mostly computer music when I was very young, working with like uh, Atari ST, Commodore 64, this kind of home computer system. Both of my parents were programmers, and they worked for the phone company. And uh, so I had this uh, unique gift of being able to ask my parents deeply technical questions about programming and signal flow and this kind of thing when I was very young. Um, you can really apply a lot of the concepts from the telephones, telephone systems, to a lot of this kind of music and these kind of instruments. In many ways, this thing that I play, this modular synth, kind of resembles a telephone switchboard. Everything is kind of on the faceplate here, all situated so that you can kind of see it a bit better. And also, later on, we can all kind of try to squeeze around. I'll show you some things. But, um, and, you know, I, I, I worked with computers. Everything was coding in basic, um, doing music and doing some sequencing and things like that, samplers. I went to school to study computer music in Boston, this place called Berkeley. And um, I was very interested with that being the kind of like the, the area of focus. And this was like the early 90s when it was a time before now, it's kind of hard to picture it now, but it was a time before when we were sort of saturated with technology. And I had a real sort of crisis in the mid 2000s after spending 10 years doing everything, working with computers and software, where I started to really just feel like I was living inside the box. I feel like I was living in a way where was more virtuality, both in artistic practice and also in the, the social aspects of how I lived. So um, I was invited to go to Harvard to do a mini residency, and there I, I started working with these classic modular synthesizers, like the Surge and Buchla. You know, this is like the 60s, 70s stuff. And something about it just really clicked. It was something about being alone in a room with just musical instruments that had a single function. I mean, Anybody that goes to conservatory will see um, you know, musical instruments as these complex but simple machines that really exist to make sound. But computers, you really have to have this discipline to make it work. You, know, you have to have this discipline to kind of like ignore all the other social aspects of computers in a way that you can sit and focus on sound. But synthesizers, I mean, there's no Facebook in this thing. There's no email. There's nothing else. There's nothing beeping, telling me world events that you know, will sort of distract me. It's just this thing that makes sound. And all the connections are, are physical. They're, they're on the faceplate. Everything is, you know, I'm not going to say that every knob has one function because now it's getting a bit more complex. There's a lot of um, embedded computing modules and things like that that are basically small computers, but they're not running anything else. They're just running sound algorithms. And um, I, really, I really just became, I went through this like really deep romance phase with this stuff where it just became a real clear way of just thinking and working in sound without having any distractions. And, it was at a time where I deeply needed that. I deeply needed something that was just a focused um, discipline. Um, and right around the same time, maybe like a little bit later, um, these Eurorack systems started to become more prevalent. At the time, there was just this dope for systems you could get in Germany. Um, when I first started traveling to Europe to play mostly computer music, um, one time I was in Berlin, sitting you know, in Mitte, and there was right around Christmas, and there was this great store, I think it's not there anymore, called Sink and Sound. And I just had this big dope for system in the window, lit up like a Christmas tree, you know. And I would get my donor kebab, and I would just stare at this thing. Just for like, I mean, for like a week straight, I would just literally just look in the window, being like, I have no idea what any of this stuff is. Um, and then one day, the shopkeeper, you know, sort of unlocked the door and let me in, and I started playing with it, you know. And I think I walked out of there the first day with just an empty case with one oscillator. Just literally just one module that all I did was make, you know, three different wave shapes, optic switch. And I brought it home, and I just was like, something about the limitations of 
just thinking about sound structurally, you know, it's like you can you can focus on the nature of an oscillator without having to think about how to sequence it or how to you know wave shape or do all these things with it. Um, and it became really like just to sit and listen to a sine wave was like you know it's obviously a very reductive act, but it's something that I really got a lot out of just listening to this purely generated sine wave, you know, to, you know whatever two hundred hertz in my room in Boston at the time. And uh, it just kind of had this kind of like significant quality to it, something about it. And then, you know, six months later, I went back and I got, say, an LFO or a mixer or a filter. And it really was like, it gave me enough time in between each stage to fully contemplate each of the building blocks of electronic music. So you can see something like a keyboard or a synth, like a 303 or a drum machine 808, is like this really complex ecosystem. You've got a sequencer, you've got arpeggiators, you've got quantizers, you've got filters, envelopes, all these things. But... Working in this way, modular concept, um, you're really forced to embrace the, the elemental aspect of, of how sound is created electronically. You know, um, I still think about this all the time now when I'm working with this. Obviously, the, the complexity of these systems have gotten really great in the last ten years. You're really afforded a lot of luxury with how you can organize and create sounds, just working purely inside this. But I still think of those early days where it was just about kind of really reveling in the quality of sound and the nature of it. You know, um, an oscillator is just feedback. It's it's creating an, an endless loop by sort of spiking voltage into the system that accumulates and regulates itself. And that you know, I never really thought about uh, a waveform in that way until I sat and I, I sat here and I looked at the um, the circuit board. You can pass this around. This is a, a sample of what one of these modules look like. So each one has on the front all of the jacks and all the connections are right at the top. And then in the back, there's usually one or two, sometimes there's three or four uh, parallel circuit boards that have all of the actual functions. In this case, it's just a unity amplifier. It takes signals at the, the level they enter and combines them in the line and then sits them back out again. So it's fairly simple. There's two amplifier chips on there. It's this tiny little thing. And in the back, you see those all these pins. The pins are a standard connection that go to a, a, a power bus in the bottom. So, in Eurorack, what's standardized is the, just the height. The widths of all the modules can be completely different. That one's called, uh, it's 2 HP, and HP is a fifth of an inch. And the whole system that I have here is, say, 104 HP, so 19 inches across. Um, uh, no, a little more than 19. Um, but that's kind of, this is maybe like a second generation version of where we were in the 90s. That one probably came out in the late 2000s. So it started out, all this doper stuff, you know, there's 100 modules of just every bit of electronic music history. There's the filter from a Korg MS-20. There's the, you know, oscillator that replicates the Roland System 100. There's some Moog filters. There's envelopes from particular sequential circuit synthesizers, right? So something about how you can sort of be promiscuous in the way that you combine and try things out within uh, electronic music was, was very appealing. And these are, sure, they're recreations of these things, but they're also like they're fairly accurate renditions and studies of how particular topologies of filter and oscillator were, were invented and patented in the 70s. And then somebody like Dieter Dopfer can see these designs and say, I can modernize this. I can take this. I can make it smaller. I can use uh, integrated circuits. I can use chips to make them kind of, you know, kind of work along the same voltage lines, you know. So this thing is basically, on the faceplate, all the voltage that comes in and out of it is all fairly standardized. Um, you can quantize things like pitch so that all the oscillators will respond the same way to an incoming pitch. It's basically the same standard that Bob Moog invented in the late 60s. It's one volt for, for every octave, 
So if, say, from negative 5 volts to positive 5 volts, that's 10 or 11 octaves, depending on how you interpret it. But it's standardized so that every volt is an octave this way. So this is a language that all of the instruments, even the stuff made in the 90s, the stuff made today, it all uses the same spec. Same with triggers. Triggers can be any sort of uh, onset of a voltage from nothing to something above, say, 2 volts. Will trigger anything in this ecosystem, regardless of who designed it. You know, it's kind of a standardized thing that the power will be the same, the height will be the same, the connections will be the same. But once you you adopt this spec, everything else is kind of you can be very creative and really um, sort of forward thinking about how you implement different ideas. So you can see this. I don't know where it is now. The module. So. These things, they're just so easy to, they really just screw into, the faceplate screws into this, you know, this four rows of space here. Um, and you can be very sort of um, impermanent with it. So what, even while I'm traveling, like yesterday, Luis just lent me this module that um, Andre Gonzalez made in Lisbon. And I took a thing out that was roughly the same size, that had similar functionality but not as dense. And I took it out and I put um, Andre's in there. And last night, you know, Luis gave it to me. An hour later, I pretty much plugged it in, tried it, it works exactly what I want. And then I started composing with it. So it's a bit like, I mean, a good analogy to make is, it's a bit like going on tour with a guitar, but then every night, it's not like so much that you take the strings off the guitar and restring it, but you actually take the pickups out, you take the switches out, you change the tuning pegs. Like, you have the ability to kind of think elementally about the nature of the instrument itself. Um, say, you know, these, these, the analogy, these tuners will keep the pitch a little bit better, these strings will have a brighter sound, these pickups will be a little louder, that kind of stuff. So you can kind of, even when you have a basic system like I do here, I have a kind of a set piece or two pieces that I play when I travel, I can still take like oscillators out, the basic building blocks of what makes the sound, and replace them with different ones midstream, mid-trip like this, and get different sort of um, timbral and spectral results out of it. And I think that, in its nature, is what's appealing about it. It's, it's not fixed. I mean, sure, you have a lot of leeway with software and things like that where you can reprogram things as you're going. Um, but this is, it's still tangible. There's still this direct correlation between how you make sound and how you modify it. And you still remain this, retain this malleability of being able to constantly change things in and out and have communication and, and conversations with people and then think about different ways to collaborate with others with different concepts and sounds until you get it to be exactly what you want. Um, this place, okay. There's a seat here if you want to see it. So. So stylistically, personally, um, I went to music school studying computer music, but at the time I was very interested in, you know, like capital A, avant-garde, electroacoustic music, like this classic French and German stuff, you know, like 60s and 70s. But it just happened to be when I was at school that sort of dance music was really happening in the US. Um, I was in college from like 91 to 95, and this is when like, you know, sort of Hardcore became happy hardcore, became jungle, became drum and bass, and, and then IDM, and all this was happening at the same time. And I kind of, you know, snuck away from my, you know, college uh, academic electronic music studio, and then started being really deep into dance music. So it was kind of like it wasn't so much like this parallel interest or a guilty pleasure or anything like that. Like I was I kind of in a way deeply interested in dance music as much as I was all of this more conceptual aesthetic stuff. 
Um, and I think where we are now is that you can kind of really play fast and loose with conventions of sort of allocating randomness and doing all these really interesting aleatoric things, but still keep this kind of like, you can still retain the lexicon of dance music. You can still use all these very significant sounds. Uh, like a year ago, I put in this, I was in a store in France, and this company had made basically the entire voice architecture of a 303 in this tiny module, this like 10 HP, so it's two inches wide. And it's the entire thing in one tiny, everything except for the sequencer. So the voice, the oscillator, the envelope, the filter, all in one module. And I thought to myself, you know, it would be really interesting to take this kind of more atomized, kind of like a asynchronous framework, and then add these kind of very referential kind of three or three sounds to it. Because I mean, personally, I love acid techno. I think I'm really, I lionize this time, especially the more Afrofuturist sides of it, I really think are super fascinating. So I got this thing thinking that I would experiment with it, but then it, it ended up slowly becoming this really core, central sort of avenue of this whole patch, because... I was working with this more sort of um, minimalist, Terry Riley, Cannon kind of thing. But then adding this sort of 303 sound, it instantly just like changes the focus of how you interpret it to this very specific thing, this very like early 90s kind of hardcore acid thing. I love that. I love how just like keeping all of the formal aspects of what I'm doing, but really just changing one sound to be acutely referential, reframes it. So now it's like instead of you thinking of it as minimalism, it instantly you hear this squelch, you think dance music. And it's these little kind of um, triggers that I find so interesting in electronic music, how you can just take a circuit. I mean, it's really the circuit of what makes the 303 sound versus the circuit that makes this other kind of like sine wave oscillator. They're not that different, but the, the little changes in how they, they render sound really re reframe it in such a diverse way. Um, and this, like, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot in the last couple of years, how you can reference things in a really clean way by actually using the circuits and the sounds. But you don't necessarily have to adhere to the rules of that music. You can really play fast and loose in a way. I mean, obviously there are cultural implications to all this. But um, as far as the actual like, topology of the circuits, it's pretty, it's pretty powerful to be able just to have this kind of base reference point that everybody knows. I mean, everybody hears the sound of a 303 and they instantly recognize it. Here, I'll, I'll just for the sake of argument play it so you know what I'm talking about. And again, it's, like, it's really just a matter of, here's the circuit, and all I need to do is just start it, and then you can hear it. It's not like I need to go into software and load a plug-in, I don't have to buy a plug-in, I don't have to do the stuff. I'm not sure I had to acquire the module, but it's more about how you can kind of, you know, I can travel around and see this thing, and then have a conversation with another human being about how it was made, and what choices they made when designing it, and how faithful of a recreation this thing it is. And... Um, ultimately decide whether I'm interested in it or not, but then also explore the way that the designer has chosen to implement aspects of it. Here, so we'll just give this kind of a straight clock. And listen to it just for a second here. Classic 303 kind of sound. And just turn it 
That's, you know, all it takes is discovering that this is a possibility, that someone has made this thing that it's reality, and as soon as I discover it, think about it, um, it becomes, it can become another tool in this, like, sort of orchestra of, of um, instruments. Now, if I wanted to have a 303, if I wanted to have this sort of Roland sound canvas, general MIDI drums, this um, filter from a Prophet 5, I could have all these instruments, and it would cover probably most of the tables in here to have all of the instruments these things are built on. And this miniaturization of it is so, it's so appealing, and it's also, like, there's no functionality that's really been left behind. It still retains all of the, the architecture of these instruments, but just has miniaturized and done in a way that, again, they all speak the same sort of lingua franca. They all can sort of easily play along with each other. And you don't really have to sacrifice much. Um, so that's maybe you know a, a, a sort of a happy middle ground between software and then the original instrument ideas, but also implement in this miniaturized way is um, that's probably the main deciding factor that I, I did I had into going sort of full on with this stuff. Now I will I mean probably the best way to do this is I'll just play a little bit. I have it sort of most semi-unpatched right now. Usually when I travel, I leave, you know, there's this many patch cables to do, the two patches that I'll play tomorrow night. Um, but I'll just sort of go through, I'll just sort of play some things, and then we can talk about how and why these, these choices were made. So the main thing I've got going here right now is... Okay, so, okay, so let's just listen to some oscillators. of flowing, minimalism-inspired music um, using this kind of canon method. So every time a, a note plays, it, it, the clock will, will choose, randomly choose another note, and then the previous one will get pushed down the line. So that, say, if this is a C, the first note, then the next note it generates is a G, and then it pushes the C down the line to the next oscillator, and say the next note's an F, and then you, you have the F here, the, you know, the G, the C, like this, all down the line. It's a great way to do polyphony to have like, you know, um, harmonies, but only using a single stream of notes that have been quantized and, you know, reined into uh, sort of diatonic uh, scalar values. So just to kind of show the basic idea of it, I'll take uh, just a, the same clock that we were just hearing, which is, you know, digitally controlled, just, you know, BPM clock. And we'll give it to... Um, We'll give it to this uh, sample and hold thing that pushes the voltages down the line called a shift register. We'll just listen to some of these values and see what we can get out of them. So first, trigger it, and then we'll use uh, slow LFO just to make a rising wave. So we'll listen to that by itself so you can hear what I'm talking about. So, right, so that's just a sawtooth, straight up like this, you know, going through the paces, we'll change the speed of it, right? But all the way down here, here, just very slowly rising up like this, you know? And it gets to the end, stops, goes back to the beginning again, it's low, and you hear it rising again. Okay, so that's, think of that as like the running your hands along a piano keyboard like this, right? 
Only the piano keyboard, you're only hitting keys that are semitones, right? If you do this on, I don't know, a guitar or with a slide, you get all the notes in between. So what we're hearing right now is we're hearing the notes in between. It's not necessarily locking into, you know, individual notes. It's kind of giving you the entire sort of, you know, interpolated range of every note in between. So what we want to do is we want to take that stream and we want to have it lock into the sort of note values. And I can do this with this quantizer here. I can say all of the semitones, all the diatonic notes. We can even dial it into some experimental scales and modes. There's some nice microtonal ones in here. Um, I'll just give it like a regular diatonic, like white keys and a keyboard kind of thing. So we'll take that. I'll run it in to right here. I'll listen to it. So, rising, input, trigger, let's see what that sounds like. So see, here, I'll, I'll bring it down a little bit. So you hear it, it's stopping. Right, it gets to the top and there's a, there's a bit of a lag because it goes out of the range of the um, I'm playing with the range bit, so it's not exactly doing the entire eight octave range of the oscillator. We're just keeping this, right? And again, the speed of it is just—it's going very slowly right now. So let's speed this up. sort of generative, let's think of it like an algorithm, but it's using an analog sort of computer concept to make this. It's very simple. Rising, right? And then this, I'm just playing the clock, so I can slow the clock down, obviously. But the sawtooth stays the same, so it's kind of, you know, they're sort of playing off of each other, creating different phases. It's a little bit magic in here, so it's not like you think about playing this on a piano, right? You can do it, but what's interesting is how they are sort of canceling each other out. There's all this magic in how it kind of the, the clock and the sawtooth are kind of totally dis desynchronized. So they're not running at the same time base, they're totally free. So they're kind of crossing over, like the sawtooth will end in between two of the clock signals, you know. And all these really beautiful things. I like how it kind of keeps resetting itself. You hear it almost like this rising arpeggio. It sounds like it's being sequenced, but really we're just playing with the rising sawtooth playing against the clock. And every now and then it, it will reset itself because it kind of falls in between the cracks of the clock and then it will reset to the bottom again. I really love this sound. This was like a really basic building block and early on when I was exploring this stuff it was a really crucial idea for me to be able to delineate this control to an algorithm within the synthesizer and not necessarily have to think about these notes, not just think about playing it on a piano, but think about how it, the 
system is doing all of that work. And I can focus on other aspects of it. I can focus on how it's being harmonized. I can focus on, on the, the quality of the oscillators while this thing is running. And then when I get to a point where I want to change it formally, I can go in there and I can do that still. I can still change that, you know, the pattern. So, what we'll do now is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you yeah. said you're not sequencing that. I'm not sequencing that. No. Okay. So think of it just literally. I wish I had like a chalkboard. It's like a. So the clock is just generating a rising voltage. So it's no voltage and then some voltage above two, two volts, two and a half volts. And then that's being generated by this. It's a clock generator. Right. Um, every time the clock generator goes to this quantizer, it chooses a new note from this rising sawtooth weight. And then it takes the note and figures out what diatonic, like, white key piano note it is closest to, right? So if you do it really slow, it's holding, and then it gets to the next one like that. So this is no sequencing. It's just thinking of it quantizing, you know. Um, the, the, every possible note in between all the glissandi, but then as soon as it gets closest to, to a diatonic note, it latches on. Within the same Within the same Yeah, but I can open it up so that it's really... What's that? The, the scale. The scale. I'm choosing it here, so this is just a diatonic, you know. Of, you know, I can. There's other. Uh, yeah, for for. Yeah, I'll show you some of the other options in this, just to kind of. So. So there's a bit of other like. This is just the nature of this the quantizer I'm using. System and it's looking at the voltages and accurately spitting out what it you know the approximation of what it thinks is the right. So I like these ones at the end because they're more here. I, I can scroll through them manually. So, so this is yes. Exactly, the art style would be a very similar version of that. So you get to do so. This is just scrolling through it manually. This is cool. So it's root fifth octave and then up a third root fifth octave. And then up a fifth, root fifth octave. And then down, you know, a fourth. But if we open it up all the way, you can scroll through the entire range of that arpeggio, like. Third. This is really nice and beautiful. So you're getting a lot of nice, I use this, this particular pattern a lot. So right now we're just listening to one oscillator, sine wave, you know. So it's all, this is just happening. There's no volume changing. There's no panning or anything like that. There's no effects. We're just listening to a sine wave running through this algorithm, right? You can play around with it in the shape of it. You know, you can get a lot of... And this is, this is doing what's called wave folding. So it takes a sine wave, and it starts to distort it subtly. So right at the top of the sine wave, it puts a little spike, like a little distortion. 
Right there. And then the spike, as you turn it up, it gets bigger and bigger. So the sine wave is here, there's the spike. It goes down again, there's the bottom, the spike. And the spike starts to get a bit wider, so it goes up and you have like a triangle like that coming through the middle. But this is a really useful, really simple way of creating more harmonic content, you know. Alright, okay, so. I, I haven't assigned anything to it yet, I'm just manually turning the knob. But yeah, that's the next step, is we start automating all of these formal and structural changes within the patch. So the, the next big one is we take, um, we'll take another oscillator and we'll give it that, like I was saying, that sort of that canon, the row, row your boat kind of thing. Let's take it um, another step and we'll start having a multiple oscillators all going down so we can hit a polyphony. So. This is what's fun about this, doing this in front of you guys, is that like some of these things, like I, I put in this, this shift register, the new one, last night, and I've yet to even use it. So for the first time, I'm sitting here in front of you, kind of learning it, but also I understand it on a schematic level. So there's really no learning curve. I just know what it is and what it's supposed to do, and I assume that it will just do that. So let's just, we'll hear. Can I just ask one quick question? Of course, yeah, please. Uh, where are we getting the variation from? Because we're not okay, getting a very nice pattern. We're not getting a repeated pattern. We're getting right, okay, so this is the thing again. So, it's the out so of say, sync. Yeah, the out of sync, exactly. Yeah. So, so the clock, right? Uh -huh. And then sawtooth, right? And it's yeah. not necessarily like when this happens, it resets. It yeah. may be you know, in between yeah, the exactly. clocks, right? So <clears throat> that's why you hear a pattern of five, pattern of five, and suddenly a pattern of six, pattern of five. Yeah. The analogy is the soccer ball, the football, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got blocks of five, blocks of six, right? So you look at it, you think this is a circle, it's uniform, but every individual shape on the football is a different, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. And they all fit together, right? So it's not, it's uniform in that they all are, you know, together like that, but then it's, there's still some, like, alinearity to mm -hmm. the way. You can see it's a complete thing, but it's still made of, of odd shapes, you know, that fit together, so. So as we're playing with it, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll use another, um, <laughs> So we'll do the quantizer again, yeah, into the inputs. So again, it's here. I'll speed this up. If we do it really fast, you can kind of hear it a bit more. Yeah. We'll go back to that first scale. Right, okay, so, so just here. But then we slow this down. Right, so there, let me freeze it. But as you speed it up, and they start to get close to the same speed, right? So that's three, you know? But it's not always three, it'll do like a four, yeah, so it shifts, the focus shifts, you know? And then we'll do it like, say, half. cheap way of doing what like a human being playing this in piano would be very difficult to do that level yeah. of accuracy and have that decision making at that speed but it, within the remit of the synthesizer it's it's actually a really simple you know it's just a simple patch it's just mm -hmm. doing two things in out of phase with each other running to one oscillator right and that's you know that's what's kind of interesting about this it's not necessarily about composing notes you don't think of it as like a work on paper you think of it as like a system a self-sustaining thing that's executing a task. And it's a bit unromantic to say it that way, but it's true. It's, it's you create a form, and then you, you allow the individual elements of it to kind of just execute a task. And you, and you don't necessarily have to 
be within the decision making at every atomic level. You can kind of just delineate those things to systems and have it do it, right? So like the, you know, the conductor isn't playing all the instruments in the orchestra. He's looking, he's saying, you know, this, the, I trust the violinist, I trust the timpani player to do, you know, to follow the score. It's a bit like that. Or maybe I don't, I don't feel like a conductor, maybe more like a puppet master, you know, like controlling these things like this, you know, really like that, you know. Trying to do the narrative, you know, but out of view, you know, like I'm, obviously I'm on stage or whatever playing this thing, but I'm not thinking about it like, you know, um, the attention is on me. Really, the attention is on all of this and how it's interrelating to, to itself. That's to me is very interesting. It's kind of allowing it to be the kind of sound producing and the formal aspects of it are all programmed into this. And then the subtle manipulations and changes are actually the performance. Okay, so let's go a bit deeper now. Okay, so we have our pattern going. We'll give the next sort of voice to another oscillator. I'm basically just mixing two signals together. I'm, I'm sort of mumbling while I'm doing this, just to remember what's happening. Um, okay, right. So let's go back so we can get them in tune. Right. So we're listening to two oscillators. Bring the wave shape up. This first one's gonna hear a little better, right? And now, as we bring up the cannon again, right? So we're getting a little bit of polyphony. They're one step behind each other. I'll slow it down a little bit. It sounds like a harmony, but really, when you bring it down, you just—they're playing the same note. You hear it. One sort of catches up with the next one. So as I bring it up, you hear dun 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 dun. Within this, we can do things like change the ranges, change the octaves, change the shape of the notes. Right. And then, on top of this, we're just listening to we're just listening to droning oscillators. There's no volume control or anything. It's just they're sustained. We start playing around with actually creating some volume. We'll take our stream of notes and we'll give it to what's called a VCA, which is a, a voltage-controlled amplifier. So the voltage-controlled amplifier. Exchanges. You hear that? 
sort of like you hear these rhythms is because I'm using this whole like, ecosystem within this that is working on uh, clock dividers, right? So the clock as it's coming in is da 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 and this envelope generator, the particular one that I'm using, you can actually take it, so there's one to one, it's doing the envelope for every clock. But then we can do things like have it skip every other one, every third one. You can still hear the notes changing in the background, but no one can sort of, you know, you know, that's kind of thing. Or even just, you know, every eight. So it's, you can hear it decaying. And then, you know, once we start getting into more sort of advanced concepts, what I like to do at this point is I start applying flavors of randomness to this. So the same module is that's generating the clock is also, it has multiple outputs you can assign pretty much anything to it. You can have LFOs that are perfectly synchronized to the clock. You can have um, different gates and pulses and triggers. But also, it'll create, like, sample and hold, which is a white noise going into basically the same concept as the, the quantizer, but instead, every clock, it just spits out a random value. So we have this thing generating four of those, and I can then allocate those to all different aspects of this, right? So I can take this one that's generating the... Right? We just, as soon as we start to introduce a little bit of randomness, it starts making choices. Okay, we'll slow it down so we can hear it. So this is just completely randomly choosing where to divide the clock. Either to multiply it to go faster or to go a lot slower. It's, it's just taking randomness and deciding, you know, if, on its own, whether to implement it or not, you know. If it crosses the threshold to the next value, it takes it. And again, it's just running independently of everything else, so... Still, like the note generation is still just only happening along the lines of the clock. It's still, dip, 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 right? So, again, what's powerful about these things is that once you create some timing event like that, we have that stuttering thing. I can then tap. I can take that and say every time this changes the the clock, we'll give it a new you know a new note value. So instead, we circumvent the original thing that was the trigger that was choosing the different notes, and we give it the end or the beginning of every cycle here. Right, so it's now every every clock event is one note. But it changes every time there's a new one. spitting out random notes because it's going, it's randomly dividing by five, seven, all these sort of prime number ones. So if we bring it more linear, 
create this kind of effect, I would be you know, in a sequencer in a computer, digital performer or logic or something, physically programming these node changes. In, you know? Or using, like in Ableton and things, you can do some clever modulus type things with allocating randomness. But in this, it's not even like it's a trick. It's, it's the nature of how this thing operates. We're not really sort of perverting it in any way. We're actually just letting it execute a thing that it's been designed to do. And I think at that, at that level, it's kind of interesting how Instantly, things get a lot more experimental when you let it just do what it wants to do, you know? If we open it up all the way, you know? It's almost doing this kind of completely aleatory thing, but it's keeping the sort of general tonality of it. I find this really nice. Um, let's, let's go to a different tuning. Computer or video game kind of sounds, right? But it's sort of the fundament of them is the same building block. It's the same idea. So that's okay. That's the basic premise of how that generator's patch works. Now we're just been working with oscillators. We haven't really been hearing anything else. But um, even just within this fixed configuration, I've got on top of the oscillators. I've also got this really nice uh, little box here that's like a model of a. Um, kind of like a Roland sound canvas from the, the late 80s, early 90s, and it has all of those general MIDI sounds in it, um, like drums and little constraints and things like that. It's just a tiny little thing. Again, it's a little computer that's running in a module that's you know, not much bigger than any of the oscillators, but it has this possibility of doing all kinds of other sounds. So just for, for sake of argument and demonstration, I'll show you just a little a simple thing. Just one quick question. Yeah, of course, please. Uh, um, what is the noise's role in the previous uh, the noise. composition? Yeah, what was okay. it doing? It was shifting uh, notes, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. So noise, uh, in this case, is um, a, a digital shift register. So it's, it's running in software, basically, mm -hmm. this particular module. But it's a, it's a model of, of digital noise, which is less resolution than analog noise. So it will kind of okay. lock to set values. It's like you know, anything in digital is, is going to be... Set value. Well, this, you can interpolate, you can do all these things, but in this case, it's 4-bit, you know, so okay. there's like, or do the math, 1024, whatever, I don't know, I, I can do it off the top of my head, but it's, um, there's so many stages. So yeah, it'll sound completely random, but if you narrow it down, it's going to lock in the same way we're doing with the quantizer and the pitch. Oh, okay. It's going to lock to a couple of different random values. Um, but independently, there's four, every clock, there's four random voltages being generated. Okay. And I'm, right now I'm mapping th those four to uh, four of these like um, clock divider modules and envelopes, right? So each one will have a different value with every clock, so that way you can have organized randomness, you know. Sure. And it's uh, just white noise, so pure. Red it's red it's red. and this it's uh, it's a digital Not model. Of, noise of, you know, no, no. You can I mean within synthesizers there's a million different flavors of noise. There's modules that will do pink brown like all yeah. different distributions. Okay. So noise in the sense of a. Oscillator, I mean, a synthesizer is just a transistor that's being heavily amplified to bring up the characters. The same thing as turning on the radio and hearing noise. So you can use it as a building block. It's inherent randomness. You can sample the noise at any point, lock it, and then use that noise value to control anything else. Um, and then, you know, pink noise is what it's um, 
slope, like low to and then roll off to high, and then brown is inverse, so it's it's low is rolled off and then it gets high. And there's all these different ones, yeah. So there's kinds of this flavors of noise. So the likelihood of pink noise giving you a lower value is twice as high as white noise, and the likelihood of brown noise giving you a higher value is twice as high as white noise. White noise is linear, same frequency all the way across. Yeah, yeah. It's neat to think of it that way, like. Uh, computationally, to think mm -hmm. of noise is is, exactly. is a probability, basically. Yeah, so. Okay, so this is yeah. We we I will easily go into these sort of technical things, which is probably it's less interesting to hear the group. But let's let's focus on um, making something that resembles music. Okay, so we have our random video game thing, but we'll just make that a little more. Okay. But what we'll do is we'll start to bring in a more more building block to the sounds. So. First one. And you notice, it's another interesting paradigm with this, is how, like, when I go to make a change, I grab the cable. It's not like, you know, the, the only way to implement it is to connect this to that, and it, or connect a couple of things down the line. So that's another thing that's really interesting. You don't really think of resources in computers. You know, you you think of programming as being this thing where you have endless resources. I only have finite amount of patch cable, so I can only really go so far. All right, so there's our, our shape. So I'm just plugging into different inputs in this thing. It's kind of it's one of very cheesy. You can play around with it, get different kind of qualities. But I like it because it really sounds like one of those '90s, like Alesis or Roland drum machines, like the digital ones. Right, so we'll stick with that one. But we still have the ability to, right? Still there.
there's your picture up there. doing the whole patch and we're starting to embellish it more and more. So uh, at an atomic level that's kind of the, the theme of it, you know, is to take this constantly shifting kind of focus, you know, to take, you hear something that's very static and repetitive but then to kind of play around more with what you can do formally, you know. I, I was watching Darren, the actress play last night and I kept thinking to myself with Blue and the coolest part, especially the first hour of his set, was how he just kept taking what you thought was the kind of pulse of it and just shifting focus just slightly so you kept hearing it in some other way. Like you're listening to this loop like a set of a bar of music, and then by adding one other element, it completely reframed how you interpreted where you were at time. You know where the, the downbeat of it was. It was like a masterclass, and then he kept doing it like the first like say 45 minutes an hour. He kept playing this thing, and you, as soon as you locked into what you thought you were in time, he would just turn it into something else. You know, and what a cool idea that is. Um, it was super inspiring. Um, and I, you know, I'm trying to do something like this in a kind of a more kind of not as rigid of a way. Maybe it's a bit more conceptual. So when I show you these examples where it's pretty static, you know, you hear it, it's like there's a downbeat, right? Right. Okay. So, but we can embellish it more so that to say we'll take that click, the, the kick drum. The beauty of this. Okay. So we'll put it like say. Drum X, drum Y. Okay, we'll give it. There's a nice picture on my right there. Okay, so it's not necessarily how you know. So, so yeah, that's doing this thing right here, right? Right. So we hear that as a downbeat, which is that's all it's doing. It's the same volume, right? But if we start playing around, even just with this one sound, we can play around with how it's. Um, is focused, but just using one sound by, by sort of running, say, that envelope, the same thing we were running up there for the, the, the melody notes. Um, okay, so we'll give it, we'll just try this as an experiment. We'll give it uh, a clock, a faster clock. So right here, we'll give it a super fast signal. And then we'll give it an envelope to shape it. So we're going to use which one? We'll use this one. Scoots build. Okay. So hopefully this won't blow up. Yeah, so nothing yet. So we want signal. Okay, that's what we did wrong. We did it backwards. So even though I've been using this stuff for for nine and twenty years now, it's easy to get lost. You know, you make assumptions on how something is going to work, and it doesn't always work exactly the way you want it to. But maybe that's the beauty of it. It kind of forces you to um, to reassess it.
idea. We'll just put, there's a master shape of the envelope that's there, and then the individual is going like say 16 minutes. Right. So the same thing we were doing earlier, where we sort of give it a little bit of randomness at a time to make it sound more diverse, we can still do that here. The only sound going into this right now is this fast speaker. And it's just a bit of volume curve. So I can have it right now, it's every time the envelope happens, it fades out. We can also do it the other way, we can do it that's fading in. Alright, so totally random, just one sound, picture. You know, and I like the idea of this really like kind of virtuoso drumming stuff, especially improvisationally. It's kind of fun to play around with this stuff in that context. I mean, this kind of breaks free from dance music in a way, and it kind of goes closer to this heavy metal style of drumming that I really like. You know, this double kick drum, kind of fast virtuoso thing. I mean, when I was a kid, I saw a Pantera play when I was probably 18, and it left this really psychic impression on me of just like what's possible with a really loud, you know, the drummer had like these four foot long cannon, you know, kick drums every time he hit one, a strobe went off, and it was just the whole concert was. You know, like this kind of like a art experience, you know, like a watching a strobe film or something. I think about this all the time. So it's kind of interesting that I can take this experience I had when I was a kid and still think about it and somehow involve this kind of sound in here, you know, without actually learning how to play drums, you know, that's another big part. I mean, you can make it go so fast, it's like pitch, you know, it sounds like a, a low note. And that's just stuttering the kick drum so fast that it almost creates an oscillator. I mean, if we can do this with any sound, it doesn't have to be a kick drum. There's a stick. You still hear the pitch. Snare drum. Hand clap.
south for all these sounds, you know. It would be conga. We'll call that the formal layer, right? So that's just how an aspect of the sound is generated. We're only using two oscillators. We're using this cheesy drum sound, sure, but um, and we can use anything else. We can we can take say like that 303 we had going earlier. We'll give it one of the other pitches, you know. Um, we'll give it a little trigger to start making a sound, and we'll just bring that in. See what it sounds like. He needs um, he needs a thing to tell it to start. So we'll give it here. It's almost like an echo. You hear it like psychologically, you hear it as an echo. 
before we've really done anything else. We're just listening to dry signals. So, I mean, depending on how deep you guys want to go, the next layer is we add things like delays and reverbs. We start, you know, incorporating more chants. There's also a very production-style mixer here, which is great for drums, where we can do things like side-chain compression so that when the drums are going, it kind of mutes everything else or ducks all the other elements to create a very kind of like a house music kind of sound. Um, again, I, I keep laboring this point, kind of hammering it in, but it's amazing how designers, they don't kind of, they keep one foot in the past. I mean, a lot of this is based in the 60s conventions and sort of experimental music from that era, but you can still have something that's very much like a, you know, like this dance music style mixer that allows you to do these contemporary production techniques that have been laboriously engineered and implemented in this way that you can use them as performance instruments. So it's one thing I find really interesting. So dance music production, sure, you see people play live, and they're basically replicating their studio setup when they play live. This thing is designed to actually to think of it um, more in a component form so that you can actually manipulate the aspects of how you sort of perfect the sound in the studio and use that as a performance tool. So it really opens up more possibilities with how you can sort of think about playing live, like truly live electronic music. So this is, yeah, again, I'm, I'm delineating a lot of uh, formal aspects to algorithms, but they're doing the things, they're doing the work. Um, nothing is being sort of recorded or phoned in, it's actually like being generated in real time. So to take something like compression, for example, and be able to manipulate that as an instrument is a really powerful idea. You can use it as a formal aspect. It can become a thing that controls dynamics. It can also be used as like a, an actual like a distortion effect. You, know, you can kind of think of it in different ways like that. They become, in this format, they become more like tools than, than building blocks. They, um, they're like compositional tools. Um, okay, so where are we at for time right now? It's uh, 11.30, so that's an hour. So um, do you want to, I mean, does anybody want to explore any particular aspects of this stuff? Before I started, I sort of neglected to ask you guys where you all were personally. Like, I'm assuming most of you are musicians, and you, you know, or you're fans of music, you're interested in learning more about this kind of stuff. Does anybody want to explore anything in particular? Within the remit of what this is able to do, uh, yeah, please. Uh, yeah. So this is a, like a, a bit endless world. So you have endless possibilities. But it's not endless. That's the thing. A computer starts to feel endless in that you're only limited by resources of the processor. This you're limited by patch cables. And what you physically have installed. Well, I mean, in terms yeah. of modules. Uh, oh, yeah, it's the availability yeah, of, yeah. of new so ideas. I yeah. think uh, the big question for yeah. anyone that's starting yeah. is where to start. Oh, yeah. So which, okay. which models to get? Uh, well, you have to look in your heart, don't you? You have to think about what you are interested in, you know? Yeah. Like, I notice when I do these things, I play the canon and half the people are like, ooh, that's, you know, minimalism. And then I play the drums and half the people are like, ooh, drums. That's like, you know, you, you have to kind of think about, you have to know something about what it is in your mind's eye you want to make, you know? And then how, how deep you want to go in doing all of this kind of automation and, and assignation of, you know, um, parameter change and modulation and this kind of stuff. So personally, what are you interested in? Like, what sort of music are you interested in? Well, uh, more experimental music. Okay, uh, great, okay. Uh, ambient stuff. Ambient, noise, right. Yeah, okay, so. sort of stuff. Um, uh, ambient, particularly, is a fascinating uh, a thing to realize in these instruments because in the past, you were limited to, say, keyboards, reverbs, delays, this kind of thing. Now, that the reverbs that are in here, they're actually they're more like instruments than reverbs. So I'm gonna just give you a quick, just to show you an example. So we'll take our, our little, um, the melody, this thing, right? And we'll give it, we'll just give it some reverb, but I'll show you just for an example of how you can take that thing that's, you know, familiar to being a melody, um, 
and we can just so wildly change it into something else just by adding a little bit of an effect. So this particular one I'm using is called the herb verb. It's a, another interesting convention of this is that um, it's software. It started out, its life started out as a software plugin developed by this guy Tom Herb who does sound hack, right? Okay. okay, so here's the dry signal. Okay. And then there's, we'll start with the reverb, right? Okay. So it's classic, you know, dull reverb kind of sound. Alright, so right off the bat, you've got EQ, things that you didn't really have previous series. So it's really great, shiny, right? But you can really darken it and then bring it to classic. modulating different parameters of this. So say we'll take something that <coughs> sine wave and we'll, we'll change that to K time. We'll modulate it over time, right? So from, you know, almost like all the way off to all the way on. Right? So that's... Right, so there's a thing. That's the length of the reverb, right? So... Take a different sort of, uh, you know, LFO change. We'll slow this one down so it's more gradual. a lot when I'm doing sound design because it's, it's great to be able to kind of like instead of scrolling through every possible combination of sound you just allocate small little slow changes to it when you lock on something you like you just freeze it there you know so I yeah, have kind of just make this a bit less I didn't even change the original melody patch. All I did was slow it down, put it in this reverb, and give it some uh, modulation that's changing. So none of the modulations are synchronized. They're free running, just sine wave, slow in, slow out. Giving it a little bit of ascent, changing the spectral tilt of it, giving the absorption rate. I find this stuff really powerful because the more you kind of let it, the more you embellish it, the more complexity the sound has. But even the simple kind of just long reverbs, these sort of complex wave shapes, surging like this. 
because it's we're still retaining the, the diatonic tonality of the notes, it creates this beautiful kind of shimmering. And you can still, even while it's modulating, you can still change it by hand, you know? You can still manipulate it that way. And you can tell it how much modulation you know, Everything has attenuators and tapers on it to slowly implement this, the change, you know, the automatic change. You can even, this one is great because you can put it in reverse, you can clock it, you can do all these really fun things with it. sustaining thing that's slowly evolving, right? So you can do that. These are, you know, modulation machines. You can really so easily do that. Personally, I mean, I make a lot of ambient music as well and a lot of things. I do a lot in the computer, but also with this. And I find things like subtle, like delays and reverbs that you can really play spectrally like that are so powerful. Even with simple, like one oscillator, you know, with a little bit of wave shaping and a long delay or long reverb like this, and you can kind of slowly change it. You get so many variations that you, you almost never really run out of combinations, you know? And it becomes very complete when you use the more you would embellish it. So, so that's one thing. Um, afterwards, come up and I'll I'll show you in detail how to do this kind of stuff. Yeah, do you yeah. play modular synths as well, or? No, no, no I'm just playing a small synth. Okay, like a keyboard synth. Like yeah, 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 yeah. But this has always been a fascination for me because I, I see people playing them and I get yeah. my hands around. Have you seen people playing ambient music on modular systems? Yeah, only online. But online. Yeah, I, I find it very fascinating. Like Robert Rich, like these kind of people. Uh, there's this guy, uh, he has a YouTube channel, uh, it's from the US, R. Benny. I don't know if you know him. No, I don't know him actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah I can show you yeah. later. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, um, I follow his channel and he has really cool stuff. Oh, that's great. Really, young, yeah, yeah. really cool stuff made on modular systems. Yeah. I love YouTube, it's just kind of like an yeah. unexpurgated way of just you know, you can get something like that self-sustaining and, and whack up like a two or three hour video of just it doing its process. And you can really, it's A, it's it, musically interesting, and B, you can study it visually and see how the music is being made, you know. This is an amazing period of time for this stuff because this would have remained a mystery until YouTube, you know, they would have just been like you would have heard a record or, you know, some broadcast or something on the radio. And now you actually have the visual language of how music is made with something like certain artists just choose to share their process in that way. And that's super fascinating, you know. I would have killed for that when I was a kid, trying to figure out how to make jungle with a sampler. I had no idea what breakbeats were or anything, you know. And, and I, now YouTube is like, oh, it's this, you know, yeah, this breakbeat yeah, yeah. and this breakbeat, and I you program this sampler in this way. Like, yeah, the cool thing is that he yeah. shows you in the video what he's doing, and then he explains what he uses, exactly. and yeah, yeah. how the signal flow works. Yeah, it's more like techno-y, but I watch Colin Bender's things a lot, because it's yeah. like the same, he's got this beautiful system. It's very linear. He'll just go from sound to sound to sound, with zoom in his hands and what he's doing, you know. Like, I still have a lot to learn, and I can, you know, like people that are willing to share the process like that are invaluable, you know. And I much prefer to see it in the context of a performance than like these endless hour-long YouTube like module demonstrations where it's just one guy talking, you know, for an hour or you know, woman or whoever. But it doesn't matter. But it's um, it's uh, it's often a drudge to try to learn that way because it's more about someone else's experience than it is about education. So, um, cool. Does anybody else want to discuss any other aspects of um of these sort of instruments? Please. Uh, I uh, I'd like to know what I can accomplish more for the for the composition side. The, okay. The composition side. Exactly. And uh, I'm kind of interested in how you can uh, uh, 
find the musical formalization okay. Yeah, this is a good, good question and a good avenue of discussion. Um, so far, everything seems so aleatoric, and we're just throwing randomness at all of these forms to generate something, you know? But it's not fun, it's not intentional. Like, the, the formal aspects are not intentional, so far. Um, that's where this comes in. I, as a tool, I like to have a computer running accurate, you know, like a score or something like this. A lot of times when I, when I do um, commissioned work, like music for picture or TV, it's specifically timed or in key or something like this, and I have to, have to be even more rigid about how I apply these things. So I use the system that's called uh, Expert Sleepers. It's a whole ecosystem of modules that let you send accurate digital signals from a computer or audio interface or anything, really, into this system to keep pitch. So the one I use is called the ES8. It's just a USB audio interface. And there's four channels, or eight channels of audio or control information or accurate pitch coming from anything in a computer. You can see some logic or Ableton. Um, I'm using Max MSP on here right now. Um, so if you want to actually say, realize the score in Sibelius or Finale or something like that is MIDI, you can then send a note and, and a decay and attack values right into your instrument and have it play scored parts, you know. Um, I don't have it running right now, but within this thing that I'm generating the drums is a great mode where you can just play back a MIDI file internally to it, and you can even clock the MIDI file from within the, the sort of time base of the synthesizer. So I was doing this thing the other day where I was doing like loud drum and acid, and it was just playing Debussy, <laughs> like, you know, it's like piano as MIDI files, you know? And you could just so easily take that pinch information and apply it, you know, to all of the other things. And it was kind of an interesting experiment. The melodies are so familiar, you know, it's like La Mer or something, and then, but it's still within the remit of the synthesizer, you hear all of the, the actual sound quality is so different, you know, but you can still use these rigid compositions as the template, you know, to create something else. Um, I actually have the computer thing running, I'll just show you a quick um, example just with one channel. So, so I'm playing acoustic sound. From the, from the computer. You know, it's an acoustic field recording that I made with this the Olympus recorder. Yeah, it's what's well, coming, it's, the computer is looping a 10 minute mono audio file of the wire, a wire shot, you know, so you can hear it's a very concrete kind of sound, right? But what the, all the computer's doing right now is, it's playing this audio file, but in, within the software system in Max, it's listening for transients. It uses this process called spectral centroid detection method. It looks for a transient, an onset, an attack, and then when it finds one, it sends a trigger to the same. So as the audio is playing in real time, it sends a trigger. And you can use the trigger to say, look what I'm doing here. I'm opening the envelope that brings the volume up. So it's almost like, um, you know... Uh, it's like a side chain. It's like a side chain, right, but it's only letting the sound through when there's attack within the audio itself. So it's using, it's using a side chain to control itself, you know. So when, it, when the volume of the sound, the, the, the noise floor is, is low, and then it disappears when there's no attack. So as soon as I hit the wire shelf, the envelope opens up, or the filter in this case. Right? It's filtered. So you hear a low-pass filter. Right? So you control how much it closes, you know, and this kind of thing, or how much resonance, all these things. This is interesting, yeah. Um, This is a really simple implementation of this kind of thing, just to show you as an example. But um, when I perform these, these the redactions pieces, it's basically 
four channels of some interrelated audio. And I'm mostly interested in the rhythm. I'm mostly interested in the timing, the cadence of the sounds, more so than the sounds themselves. Uh, gleaning some context from the natural rhythm of things, you know? Like a lot of the sounds are not really musical, they're just sort of environments or things. Um, I spent an hour yesterday next door at the music school just listening to all the students practice, you know, at the same time. And I was thinking about how interesting that is formally to have this like multiple solo performance, you know, and I made some recordings of things. But um, that's a good analogy for the approach. It's to take these completely unsynchronized things, almost like random, you know, but to use, to, to, to extract the kind of significant aspects of it, you know. So sometimes I'll see somebody playing drums in the street, I'll record it, you know, but then just use the timing of it to trigger other things, you know, because you can have that. You can, you can take the formal aspect of it without necessarily just the audio signal. Um, obviously, this deviates from your question, but it's you know you can you have a lot of power over you or how, the way you can organize things when you're working in the computer system. Um, or in MIDI, you can do the same kind of approach with the MIDI sequencer. There's other ways to do it, but the computer just because people tend to work natively, you know. But also notice how like even when I play, the computer's there, but the screen is off. You know, I just don't even think about it. It's just, I still have access to all of these sounds here. I can still go in here and play them. You know when they work. Um, oh, I tried that. Right. So there are no They're just four randomly chosen. That's like, you know, uh, kids playing Casio in a, in a music store. There's... So each one of those four signals is sending the audio and the trigger into the instrument, okay. and then I can... Are the normal signals come from maximum Exactly, they're playing it. I have the patch up, and it's just it's like this, you know, here. Um, it's just running this kind of thing. You can see the readout of the levels, and then the, the clicks are here. There's some general pitch control. It's the most simple patch. It's mostly there. The only visual interface is there, because when I set it up, I, maybe some nights I choose the sound, some nights I don't. I just it will randomly choose from this bag of 1,000 10-minute mono audio recordings. Um, but because it's a real-time process, I don't have to really think about it too much. I don't have to prepare the sounds in any way. I just have to make them significant, you know, edit them down a little bit, and then just put them in there. And then, say, if I'm doing a themed performance, like redactions are generally conceptual, you know. Like I did one of all... Um, there was a, a record of, of Ezra Pound reading one of the cantos that was um, in... They found it at a library at Harvard... And it was unplayable, you know. It was a shellac record from the 20s, you know. But it was what? Ezra Pound, the poet, you know. Um, it was a recording of him reading a poem, right? Oh, but we couldn't play the record because it destroyed it, right? So we took high-resolution photographs of it, scanned it, basically. And then we used all these um, computer systems to sonify it. We used, like, a, you know, image, like, polar to coordinate things to take the grooves and make them straight. And then we used, we zoomed in on the waveforms and synthesized them, you know, using these kind of different tools. And then, so I did a whole performance of just what the record probably sounded like, focusing on the actual audio, but mostly thinking about the shape of the waveforms and, and the, the degradation of the record itself, right? And again, this whole conceptual thing. Actually, I have some of them in here. Um, oh no, it's, they're not currently in here. 
but you get the idea. It's, um, so you can kind of think conceptually about sound in this way as a building block, even like acoustic sound, but the transformation becomes the focus of it. It's how you take the sounds and allocate these processes and turn it into something entirely. It's a transformative work, you know, um, but starting from fixed audio recorders, you know. For me personally, that's an interesting area of exploration. I like this more abstract aesthetic thing, you know. Using all these formalizations. Exactly, right. Like, but it's, it's formalized in that they're set, you know, the, the realizations of the audio in this case were set, you know. Um, a lot of times I go to venues where I'm performing a day early and I just try to record some facet of the space, an acoustic, an impulse response, something, you know, that captures it. I did one in, last year in Berlin at Kraftwerk that was like, they had all this beautiful industrial detritus up on the top floor, and I did this very, you know, Anstesen and Neubauten style, like dragging metal and just doing all this kind of thing, and created all of these sounds, but the commonality was the acoustic of the space, which is this massive cavernous place. And I love the idea that I could take all these sounds and I ran them through like de-reverberation processes to take all of the, the acoustic out of them and then played them back through the same place as dry signals, you know? And then it, then it reverberated them again with all of the spectral artifacts that were moving in the first place. It was interesting. I'm not going to say it was totally successful, but as a conceptual idea, it was very interesting to me. It was kind of a powerful gesture to kind of play a room back to itself, but removing all of the qualities of it and then reintroducing these like version sounds again to this space, you know. Um, you know, and that sounds very romantic, but then in the end it's kind of like, you know, what happens was you're mostly focusing on the spectralization, like the artifacts of the process of taking out the reverb, which I found very interesting. In the same way the artifacts of the Ezra Pound sonifications were very glitchy and spectral, but they had a nice quality to them, so it's not so much about the the context is the quality of the sound itself, you know. This is, I mean, it's just thinking in a very aesthetic, concrete kind of way, but um, there's a lot of possibility in there, you know. But I have done things like with scored music, and I've had to do things that are realizations of someone else's pieces, and I have, I'm working from scores, you know. Um, and that's one way of doing it. You can even just feed MIDI. I've fed MIDI from Finale through this system, and it's perfectly in tune, and you can do everything that way, you know. Not in this like switched on box kind of way. I, I don't think I do anything that cheesy, but that's kind of um, yeah. I did one that was uh, Scriabin, you know, those like big Scriabin chords, you know, the A linear kind of multi octave chords, um, and then just like running them through, recreating them with oscillators, analog oscillators, and then giving these these chord stacks to somebody who was doing a more of an orchestral uh, electronic arrangement of this new material, you know. So that's interesting. <coughs> one way of doing it. So okay, I hope that answers your question. That was a long answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyone else? Is there any difference between playing these waves from the computer or a wave player? In this case, no, only because there's an analysis layer happening with pulling the attacks out. Um, yeah, you could technically just run four channels. You'd have to do some level matching. This stuff operates at a pretty high voltage range. It's like roughly 10 volts negative to positive, so it's a 20 volt range. I mean, like a, running just audio out of your phone would be a lot quieter, so you'd really have to amplify it to get it up to the level. No, I mean these uh, wave players like ADAC or... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. ADAC, exactly, you just, yeah. it's just an SD card plays it back. Yeah. I used to use one of these. Yeah, well. so, yeah. um, in this case, you'd have to extract the peaks by using something like a comparator, so you'd need another module in the, in the system to listen to the thresholds. A comparator, an analog comparator, is just going to listen to the audio, and then when it goes over a threshold, it goes high, it makes a trigger. And then when it goes quiet, it goes low. So there's one actually I used for a while um, that's four of them in one module, and you just can play it by hand and get the triggers that way. So that's one way of doing it. 
Um, but yeah, the Adduck Wave Player is a really elegant example. You can do audio with these expert sleepers things as well. Um, Tip Top made one recently that's really small. It's like 4 HP and it has a little SD card and you can kind of treat it more like a sampler, you know? Yeah. So you can do elastic like time stretching and pitch and things like that, so. Um, yeah, sampling in this has also gotten really mature in the last year or two. There's Dave Rawson made one that's like an eight channel, basically kind of Kai sampler in a module where you can actually have control over phase modulation and all these different aspects. It's very powerful, but also it's like, it's massive, you know? So you have to commit to the amount of um, space you want to allocate to something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I like this particular case. Um, it closes and it fits in the overhead compartment in the airplane, and I kind of feel like anything bigger than this would be too much strain on my back, you know, like carrying it through airports. But um, so it's nice to have this set kind of like I'll never get anything bigger than this for travel, you know. But every, you know, every six months I look at it and I go, you know, I'm not using this so much, or I'm not using this so much. You know, it'd be nice if I had this kind of thing, and I think about how to fill that space with something else, you know. Um, and yeah, I still do a lot of collaboration with people thinking about what, what isn't in here that I'd love to see, you know, like particular realizations of building blocks of other synthesizers, you know. I was obsessing over this synthesizer called the Steiner Parker Synthicon that was made in Salt Lake City in the, the 70s and 80s, and I really loved the sound of the filter. And I kept asking all these people if they were going to, you know, make this obscure filter in this format. And all these people were like, yeah, totally, we can do that. And they did the research and the math and then built, you know, versions of it. So it's kind of neat how you can pepper the world of manufacturing with ideas. And then people will choose to kind of realize them or not, you know, depending on what their, their interests are. So, um, yeah. But yeah, the Wave Player is like, right, it's a beautiful solution for just playing, you know, stems. I think 4MS has one now that you can record and play back at the same time. So you can record what you're doing and then store it to an SD card and then play it later or play other audio while you're recording something else. It's pretty powerful. And it's very small too, so. High for like 2496 something price, you know, that's really nice. It's really interesting. All right, anybody else have any questions? Or? Um, I have a question. Yeah, please. Um, um, I want to know um, how do you see the beauty and aesthetics in relation to these kind of procedures, which are mostly conceptual and sometimes less musical? Yeah, so that's another good question. Um, I know I speak in a very rough and kind of <coughs> practical way about this stuff because <coughs> I'm describing it more in terms of the science of it. You know, um, it's not to say that I don't dwell in the beauty of it. I don't dwell in the aesthetic. You know, I do very much so. Um, I like this this mix of being intent with music and creating exactly what you want, but also accepting some level of collaboration with an, an otherness of how the machine itself takes your ideas and realizes them. Um, and I'm, I'm rarely not struck by the beauty of, um, of chance and collaborative, you know, kind of letting it uh, do its thing, you know. But also when I sit and just kind of like assess the quality of the sound in a way that it's, it's doing exactly what I, I want, that's such a rewarding thing. And it's, it's, it's not so common to have complete control over these ecosystems. There's still always a of chance there regardless of how tight you are. Like even like we were talking about this computer scenario. You can have it be, you can have every formal aspect of this thing completely you know, dictated by a system, but still you're, you're open to chance. In a way. You can always incur a little bit, right? So with beauty itself, I mean, I personally 
love these cameras, and I'm interested in exploring them, and I've, ch I've chosen all of these. These are this, all of this is intentional. So, if I'm creating a, a kind of beauty or stepping back and kind of appreciating it just in a sonic level, um, I can do that because I've, I've thought about, I've put the work into what it's going to be and what I intend to do with it, and then the end result is all to me is always very pleasing and always very you know. Kind of, I can step back and think of it like. I've composed something, but I can also sit back and just appreciate how it's, you know, like how it's executing this task, but also the emotional resonances of it, you know, or even though it's, yeah, we're, we're giving a lot of chance and risk into this thing, it still, it strikes an odd beauty because you can kind of see this halfway point between how you perceive music on an emotive level and how it's organizing the sound or how I've chosen to let it organize the sound. So there's something very beautiful about that sort of machine man sort of um, hybrid, I think. That's personally, I think that's really. I'm a big uh, a fan of Norbert Wiener's whole like um, cybernetics theory. I think that's, which is you know mostly architected in the 50s, long before these kind of systems were really possible. You know, and he has this whole thing about turbulent flows. So you can have a thing that's, you know, it, it's it's executing a task is one way of looking at it. It's it's following through with what you tell it to do. But the turbulence is in how it misinterprets what you intend, you know? And I, I really, I think of this model a lot of how you compose something and it's set and your intentions are set, but then by just letting it kind of skew that or just deviate from it, you get all this really beautiful stuff, you know? It's just like, you know, you, you write a piece for an ensemble and somebody is slightly out of tune or somebody doesn't show up that day or, or, or brings their cousin or like, you know, there's all these other variables within humanity that are, um, you know, they're unquantifiable. So you can kind of, you, you can let that happen. You know, you can let this sort of chance happen. Or you can rigidly dictate something and then revel in the, the perfectness of it. You know? But I, I am personally more invested in imperfection in this way. So I find beauty in imperfection in a way that's, you know, no two trees are alike. So a tree is beautiful, but no two trees are exactly the same. You can admire that. You can admire the cellular randomness of that, you know? That's, that's one model that I think about when I'm thinking about this music. So are you a composer as well? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm currently studying Are you studying this kind of thing, but then more focusing on software or? Synthesis. Okay. I'm getting to introduce the maximum speed. Okay, yeah, yeah. Algorithm, algorithm composition. Yeah, yeah. I started um, at college in maximum speed as well. And I still think that between Super Collider and Max, that's really the core of what you need to know, especially for composition. I highly recommend uh, Carl Heinz Essel's Real-Time Composition Library, which is free to download. It's a Max, um, it's called RTC-LIB. It's a, a whole toolkit for, um, yeah, and the guy's name is Carl Heinz Essel, E-S-S-L. It's from like 15 years ago, but it's an amazing algorithmic toolkit for Max. You just go to a site and you download it and it pops up in a window when you load Max and you can use these patches for like Gaussian distribution and rounding motion and this kind of like, you know, a Boolean, you know, algebra concepts and logic and all that within Max. I learned a lot from studying these patches. It really made my whole sort of interpretation of what was possible with chance in Max in a much more elegant way, I think. You know? So, yeah, it's a really good one. There's a lot. I mean, Max is a lot of really great, you know. Um, a lot of the work has been done by other people, so you can really hinge on other people's research and then implement these ideas in your own compositions in a really nice way. Um, what else? Timothy Places, you know, TAP, T-A-P tools. 
Those are really good. That's another like add-on for Max. And I'm yeah T A P tools tap tools T A yeah T A P like Timothy A place. Yeah, those are great. Um, but particularly Carl Heinz's toolkit. I've made so much music, you know, like along these sort of Zanakis formalized music kind of lines, using Carl Heinz's toolkit to allow for these distributions of events and, and harmony and things like that. Yeah, um, just a kind of question mm -hmm. because um, I have limited access to modular synthesis, mm -hmm. but I'm quite interested. Uh, I have um, uh, over 100 systems yeah. in North School, it's the standard. Um, do you recommend uh, some procedures for, for me to explore? Um, are you composing notes on paper? Is that mostly your thing? Or are you thinking more about systems? I think more about textures. Textures, okay, yeah. Um, FM, you know, this whole world is in frequency modulation. And amplitude modulation, but that's a great way to start with the doper stuff, especially to yield a sort of timbral complexity. Just to start getting into serially chaining LFOs and oscillators into each other at audio rates to get all these sideband and beautiful like hysteresis. You know, um, that's kind of what I was interested in exploring the most when I started. And I still use these, these textures all the time, this kind of quickly audio rate modulating kind of sounds. It's very similar to the way I was showing you with the wave shaping earlier, but you're doing it more at a frequency level, you know. You create all these really beautiful sounds. So. You can take an oscillator, a single one, and I'll show you just a quick example. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so, so. Getting synced from this one, and this one is getting synced from that one. And they start to behave erratically because 
it's like a nested loop in programming. They don't know what to do next. So they start to go outside of the range of what they've been programmed to do. And you get all this beautiful textural and temporal stuff in there. I'm not going to use the word glitch. I think that's not exactly what's happening because they're designed this way. It's not a glitch. It's an intentional function of the oscillators to be able to receive synchronization from something else. It's a shot of rates. But that's my favorite sound with the dope verse, just the precision oscillators. And like the sync of one going into the first one and the sync of that one going into the other one and just playing with really close tuning until they start locking into all these patterns. And it's something you can... Like the, the, this, the harmonic series that it generates is such a beautiful combination of things. You can really play around with the, the scale of it in a really nice way. So that's, yeah, and what other modules are in that system that you use? I know it probably has those 110 oscillators. Yeah. Um, quad function generator, like the LFOs. That's really nice. Yeah, that's a really great module as well for doing subtle changes of timbre, pulse width modulation, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, the square waves pulse width modulation when you stack them is really nice. They start to actually physically cancel each other out, you know? Like a, a wave going high here and a wave going low here will actually result here. So plus five volts, minus five volts, you know, mixed together. So you start getting all this really neat phase cancellation, kind of almost like vocoding kind of sounds. It's a really great gopher trick. And you have stacks of oscillators with tuned and roots and fifths and fourths. And you start to play around with the pulse width, you get all these really neat, kind of cool sideband kind of sound. Especially if you run it like at a higher frequency, two, three K up. That's a really beautiful dope for sound. Um, yeah, I mean the, the possibilities for wave shaping and, and organization are pretty endless in that system. I also, like I said, I, I started with the dope for stuff personally. Um, and it's it's still one of my favorite sort of ecosystems. I still think the full system, you've got every basic thing that you'll ever need in synthesizers is a doper. And those were really cheap and they're like they're easy to use and they're reliable. So yeah, I love that stuff. I still use a couple things in here from my old doper days of twenty years ago. So yeah. But you know, when you start getting into computer control of that thing, you can be really exacting, like we were saying. You know, you can really get hyper accurate with you know you have to experiment, but then when you find your combination you can create a piece of just you know, the sounds that you are discovering. Do you think a lot of, um, do you have harmonic, harmonic considerations? Yeah, of course. It's intuitive. It's intuitive to a, to a degree, but um, it's repeatable, definitely. I mean, sounds <laughs> like just, you know, just showing you, like sounds like that that I like, I can instantly dial them in and use them. It's not like it's complete chaos, you know. It's just definitely a learning curve, but there's always an intent, absolutely. I mean, I think of it still as a composition, even though I'm giving it so much chance, it's very intentional, you know. You can be very exacting with these things, if you choose to, you know. I'm, I'm giving you this very aesthetic version of it that's hinging on chance and randomness, but it's, for me, it's a way to create variation. But if you want to be more conservative with, you know, repetition and things like that, you can absolutely do that. I've done a lot of recordings, especially with the, um, the Buchla and Serge sense, where they're really just playing notes and just reveling in the, how they organize sound, you know, with the way the sequencers work and the tuning inconsistencies. I just really love that playing around with that stuff as well. So, yeah, you can be as exacting or as chaotic as you choose. And that's, I think that's a, a personal choice, not necessarily dictated to you by the system. So, you choose your own aesthetic framework that you approach it with. So, yeah, no worries. I have a question. Oh, I'm please. Trying to put together my first track. Okay. 84. And mostly because 
I'm trying to figure <coughs> the easiest way to get complex modulation sources. Like, okay. it's better to have <coughs> smaller um, blocks and mix them, or have one feature back model. Uh, Are you talking about an oscillator specifically, or? Um, um, like, the rack, it's going to be like a sound processor unit around okay. uh, reverb or morphogene or yeah. Morphogene as a standalone module is fantastic. Yeah. I can't recommend that enough. Especially if you're interested in these granular mm -hmm. freezing yeah. timbres. It's such an elegant thing, you know? So I want to yeah. have like an input because I want to use other synths and other sources like it or yeah. this electric microphones or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I wonder how to get more complex modulation sources possible, okay. having budget and space in mind. Budget, yeah, budget's definitely a concern. Um, are you, before this, are you working mostly in computers? Um, no, I have a few synthesizers, but small ones. Okay, yeah. Also, yeah. I just, I always think of, like, when you're starting out, of, of using the resources, obviously you have a computer, you have a phone, you have something you can, you can use with that. Um, because you can use something like this expert sleepers, and if you're just working in software, you can you have eight of anything. You know, you have eight sample and holds, you have eight holds, you have eight. there's always a way to do it that way. Um, when you find your combination, when you find your, your your system, then you can implement it with hardware. You know, but when you're still like kind of figuring out what it is you want to do, um, it's smart to use this as a resource. It really is because then you can you can figure out exactly you can rein it in to what you need and then you can go forward from there. Um, I like personally for modulation, if you want to have like four uh, uncoupled modulation sources, these Batumi uh, LFO modules, they're small, there's the digital, you know, but there's four of anything. You can have four <coughs> different wavetapes. You can have them running in quadrature or you can have them running free or you can have them doing even like a harmonic series. So the first one's here, the second one's twice as fast, the third one's three times, fourth one, you know, and you can scale through them like that. They're really, and there's like a, you can assign. Yeah, one of the, the last out is either a rising or a, a falling sawtooth, or a spike or a pulse width modulation. Like, so it's kind of, and it's all in the back with jumpers. You can really get very clever with um, having them, like say, feed into each other, four, and then the last one going back into the, the front top again, so they have this complex evolving. Yeah, that's, yeah that's, that is a great thing for that. There's also modules that are, digital by design that are like serial LFOs by default. Like I forget the name of the one I was using, um, but it had basically it's the same premise. Oh, it's the, the DeWan uh, triple slice, where it's three oscillators kind of running in a, a series and then back to the top again. So they're wave shaping each other, you know. Um, that's more of an audio rate thing. But for, yeah, for LFO and modulation, the two means fantastic. Small and you know you can use every output of every LFO simultaneously. So you can kind of like what I do is I send the the signs of each to each other. So I have two of them, you know, and then I use the sawtooth and pulse withouts to trigger things. And you know they're still like the one is speeding up the other, and then as this one gets fast, it speeds this one up, and this one speeds up to this one. You start getting all these, you know, like I was doing with the phase of the clock versus the sawtooth to create the melody. Same idea, more of a control rate where you're having these. Yeah, they, they feel like they're alive. They're surging and breathing in this really beautiful way. So, yeah, those are really great. Um, I just, I mean, uh, Luis is lending me this module of Andres. It's like a, um, like a maths, you know, like kind of a, a 
function generator, but there's four of them in this really small module. That's really, really nice. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, you know, there's, with this stuff, there's, if you can conceive of an idea, likely somebody has, <laughs> has made it or implemented it in some way. You know? I'm rarely left without a solution for like a musical idea, a formal idea, or an effect, or some kind of sound source. I mean, it's just, the world is so huge at this point. I mean, we're in the, there's got to be at least 5,000 Eurorack modules at this point. There's at least 500 manufacturers, you know, making all kinds of things, you know. There's probably somebody in town here that's making this stuff. You know, in every city, there's somebody making this stuff. It's become this huge kind of cottage industry. That's kind of it's interesting because it's it's really focusing on experimental music in a way. It's not. I mean, yeah, sure, there are a lot of things like this 808, 909, 303 paradigm. Like, you know, I'm using some of that stuff. But the the architects in this case, the the Don Buchlas and the Serbs Turepnins are they were so concerned with the future of music, you know, and now we're so obsessed with recreating the past. You know, it's kind of, it's become this really interesting uh, didactic where all the people that architected this stuff were only thinking about what was possible, and now we're thinking about what has been done. But some people are actually, you know, they're trying to push it into other things, you know. Yeah, like the Andre's a great example of that, kind of pushing it forward a little bit, keeping it more, um, a little bit less rigid, I mean. Um, I like all this format stuff. I especially love their, their whole time-based thing, like I was showing you all these clock dividers. Everything is integrated with some sort of uh, interrelated tempo, you know. You can take one clock and run into these things that have a million different like, uh, you know, timing variations, you know. Even the delay line, you can do the same trick with it. You give it a master clock and then you can dial in related delay times, you know, that repeat the sound along a time base that way. It's really, really powerful. Yeah, I've been using tons of this stuff. I really like it. But as a modulation source, it's also really great, you know, because you can take any trigger and run it through Portamento or SLU and create modulations based on synchronized time. Their, uh, their LFO, which is called the Quad Pingable LFO, is really, really powerful, similar to a Batumi. You can trigger it like envelopes, or you can have it free running in these kind of harmonic series rhythms, you know. You could do anything from between a, a spike to triangle wave to sawtooth, you know. <coughs> so it's another really good one. So. And very playable, and all their stuff has headers in the back so you can chain multiple modules together. So you can, like, trigger this clock, um, the, what is it called? Quad clock divider. You can just have it automatically chained to the LFO running at the same, like sharing the same timing, but then still use the individual ins and outputs, so. You still make feedback patches and things like that with it, so. Yeah, you're not you're not um, left wanting for modulation. <laughs> that's really, I mean, that's kind of the you know the central focus of these instruments. So, let, I mean, let me know in more detail personally about what you're interested in. I'll give you some yeah. recommendations. Yeah, I want to know some yeah. models, specific models. Of course, yeah, yeah. I'm about to help there. So. Yeah. All right, anybody else? Please. Oh, the just, yeah. Um, if you could share with us um, your approach to composition, and like for instance, in single songwriting music, you can just there are people that like they perhaps start with the lyrics, okay. then they go with the corporate progression, <coughs> then it's, it's pretty fixed. You have a verse, you have a bridge, you have a mm-hmm. of course, yeah, yeah. and yes, so many chances here, and what separates experimentation with deciding what's good, because I think I could. Really get lost. Then, yeah, yeah. And when is the moment in which you decide, okay, this is good, or 
do you, do you have like a deadline or do you like look for like inspiration like on any okay. theme? So, um, because it's sometimes when I used to study composition, mm -hmm. I need to have a theme. So I feel like for 15 days I just think about the concept. 15 yeah. days. Then the composition, three days is done. Yeah. But sometimes it's really easy to get lost and you just experiment the whole life. Right. That's good. But sometimes it's good to, to sit and to plan or to, to, to settle some deadlines. Right, of course. It's, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting you use this sort of singer-songwriter model. Now you think of that, there's, I mean, there's, just to expand on it, there's so much risk and chance there. So like a person playing music on the street is like, you know, um, maybe he's hungover, maybe she broke up with her partner last night, she's singing a song that she wrote a week ago about how she felt about that person, you know, and it's like, it's, all these things are so malleable. It's like music is in no way a fixed thing, you know, even a composition. There's rules, yeah, you, you're composing lyrics, you're composing a chord structure, right? You're definitely not playing it exactly the same way from day to day. The weather changes, you know, the, everything changes. The guitar goes out of tune, the microphone, you know, the, the battery and the amplifier dies. There's too much reverb. And it's like, you know, you, you are thinking about these things when you're performing, but it's not like in any way, exactly the same, you know. Like a digital recording is as close to a fixed thing as you can get, but no other aspect of music is really that <coughs> set. It's that, that numeric, you know. Um, you write a piece for a string quartet, fixed configuration. They play too fast, they play too slow, they play too quiet. The humidity is, in the space, is too high or low, and the instruments go out of tune. Um, you know, the bridge moves, the strings break, the bow is, you know, not enough rosin. You, you, if you embrace all these concepts, it's not too dissimilar from this, you know? Like, it's really, you're, I'm trying to keep on top of what can change and what the elements of risk are, but um, you can't discount the complexity of just how music is realized versus what it's intended to be. So um, that's not a bad paradigm for this. Um, I've seen Bob Dylan play maybe 30 times, and every time he'll do the same song, and it's vastly different, you know? He's young, he gets old, his voice goes out, his voice comes back. He, uh, gets really into Jesus. He, you know, gets away from Jesus. He starts drinking again. He stops. It's like you know, it's there's all these things that change. What to me is an experience of hearing a recording when I was a kid versus the reality of, of him playing this music right now as an adult, as an old man, as, as somebody who's about to retire. Somebody comes back from retirement, goes back into retirement, hires a new band, different acoustics, different venues. There's all these like endless variables that you know that change, you know, the, the mental image I have of what Bob Dylan sounds like versus every time I see him, it's some other thing that I haven't thought about. He's wearing a terrible shirt. He's wearing a really nice shirt. He's got great shoes, bad shoes, you know, maybe hungover, maybe dehydrated, you know, probably got some bad news that day. Maybe he's going to get married again. Like, I don't know. There's all these, like, you just, you know, it's just so endless, you know, because they're people. You know, like, you know, ultimately, I'm a person playing this music. It's... I'm bringing some baggage to it. Um, it's not so rigid that that doesn't change it. You know what I mean? Like, like what I'm feeling like is absolutely going to drive some formal aspect of this. You know, in the same way that you write a song, it's fixed. There's lyrics, there's chords, there's the way you present it. It's never going to be the same twice. You know, you you decide how much you impart your personality or your risk into how you realize something. You know, that's a, a conscious decision. Um, and so all I'm really doing here is that, you know, it's thinking about all of these variables and then allowing them to either affect it or not, you know. Um, yeah, that's a very, again, a very rose-tinted way of looking at music, but I think about 
there's really not that much difference, really, between how you intend any kind of music to be and how it ends up actually sounding to other people or to yourself, you know, um, because the world is complicated and full of, you know, change, and that's um, it's a beautiful thing to embrace and to let it be, you know. Yeah, when you see that person on the street playing the newly minted love song for their partner that they just broke up with last night, and there's just, like, it's the only material they have, and they're just... Uh, you know, my, my attitude to this whole situation has changed so drastically in the last 24 hours. You know, it's funny, funny and, and sad and, and amazing to see that kind of, you know, somebody bringing that level of emotion to music, you know. So, I, um, I love that. I love humanity. I love all of this stuff. So, um, it's interesting to take such a, a seemingly cold and dead and lifeless thing and to still impart this. I mean, I, I think I put a lot of humor into this. I think I put a lot of sort of pathos into it as well, you know, so it's a way of, um, yeah, it's a way of, of, again, setting it up as an ecosystem, but also having the ability to corral it into what you need it to be or what you intend it to be based on the current situation that you're in, so that's also a long and circuitous answer to an interesting question. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. <coughs> uh, yeah. So I was uh, wondering, um, uh, you, you, a lot of your uh, process is based on randomness, on uh, in this, in on this, yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of controlling chaos mm -hmm. kind of thing, allowing um, little bits of chaos to break through, exactly. not necessarily yeah. fully yeah. breaking chaos. But, yeah. uh, is it uh, possible to just connect a MIDI controller to your system? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that would be interesting, and. Um, uh, would, would it be possible to do everything that you have going on there in Max? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But no question. Yeah. And exactly. sonically, it wouldn't be that different. You know, you'd lose the the ability just to do that. You know, you'd yeah, lose that physically. because Max is you can't cache in real time now, especially Max eight. You can really you're getting away with more in real time. Mm -hmm. um, at this, I can I can literally pull that master clock. The whole thing stops. You know, yeah, and it's it's there. You know, and then I can start it again this way. But um. <coughs> Max still feels a bit recursive in that way, where you can't go to the middle of it and pull something out, you know? I see what um, you mean. Something like processing, or mm -hmm. what do all the algorithm guys use? Um, there's another system. What's that? It's not, there's something else, on tidal, tidal cycles. That's the, that stuff you can get in the middle of it and really circumvent it at like an atomic level. It's very powerful. Isn't titled uh, programmable with code, actual mm -hmm. code? Yeah, it's like yeah, it's yeah, a command line. Yeah, yeah, Haskell, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the one they, they show you the code actually. on the screen, and they, it's everything is real time. I really like this stuff. I think it's a nice, a nice inventive uh, kind of music. I see. Um, but yeah, no, at Max is so powerful. There's a, a whole analog synth in there called Beep, the B E A P, a modular synth. It's mm -hmm. excellent. It's only a few years old. You can all of this stuff is mm -hmm. in there. There's also a um, virtual modular synth called V C V Rack. Um, that's free, and it has a lot of, actually these 4MS guys coded modules for VCV Rack, so you can try them, a vir virtually identical version in software. In software. In software. In software. In software.